0: I want to return this Margaritaville. My dad bought it on a payment plan set up by a finance company that got investors from Wall Street who combined it into security sold to the banks who transferred it to you.
1: Oh, that makes sense.
2: No problem. We just need to consult the chart.
0: Find a cure. Find a cure for my life. Find a cure. Find a cure for my life. Find a cure. Find a cure for my life. Find a cure. Find a cure for my life. Hello, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum.
3: And I'm Alex Bloomberg. And today is Friday, March 27th. And today, we have a little game to play with $50 million and an envelope.
0: And we have a conversation with a top official in charge of looking for bad guys, uh, fraud, that kind of thing in the uh, $700 billion bailout.
3: That's all coming up. But first, our Planet Money indicator...
0: Actually, we have two indicators, and they are both the same number, 0.2%. The Commerce Department said today consumer spending was up 0.2%, but incomes are down 0.2%.
3: That's kind of confusing. People are earning less money, but spending more.
0: And we are actually just going to let those numbers (laughs) sit there, and we will talk about them next week. We're going to have a deep, in-depth discussion about spending and savings and uh, that Chart, you remember that chart, Alex, that you got from
3: David Byme at Columbia that caused a big fuss. Remember it? It's been I've been having nightmares about it ever since he told me about it. Yes, and it's the one showing uh, household debt—that is, the debt that you and uh, you and I and everybody else in America owes on our houses and cars and stuff—as a percentage of GDP. It's a hundred percent of GDP. And the last time it was like that was the Great Depression. And when we talked about it on the podcast, a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners and regular readers got angry at that chart. Um, saying that we were blaming them for the problems. And it's not that we're blaming individual people, but we as a country seem to be living beyond our means. That's what that chart seems to be saying. But not to say that every single person in the country is living living beyond their means. But, yeah. So we're going to talk more about that next week.
0: Hey, Alex. So we actually wanted to talk a bit about the grand plans to rewrite the rules of our financial system, you know, those... uh, Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner was in front of the House Financial Services Committee this week laying them out. And so uh, mm. our own Adam Davidson came in to talk about it. Hey, Adam. Hey, David. So you want to talk about the systemic risk regulator, right, which is a central part of this plan.
4: Yeah, exactly. So so basically, uh, th- there's been an idea in cooking around the academic community for a long time, and that's now seeing the light of day in the you know public square, which is that we need an additional level of regulation that that we have we have regulators who are there to make sure that each bank or each insurance company is healthy we have regulators to make sure that the customers of banks and insurance companies aren't you know taken for a ride aren't aren't taken advantage of but we don't have a regulator who looks at the whole system and and that's What we need, systemic risk regulators, sort of in the name. Central to this idea is that it is possible that you would have a system of banks and insurance companies and hedge funds where each one is healthy. Each one is very healthy. Each one is treating its customers well. But the overall system is really unhealthy. Here's what happens you have a growth spurt. Banks are buying assets, they're lending money, they're growing, growing, growing. And then the growth spurt ends. Maybe it was a bubble, maybe just. You know, it's a, a just a regular old downturn. And so the banks start retrenching. And the banks, being very proper, well-run, reasonable banks, they start selling off their assets to cover themselves for this bad turn of events. And and this is very standard. But what happens when all the banks are, are healthy, when all the banks are well-run, when all the banks are responsible and, and selling off their assets to cover their debts, then you have... Uh, a situation where everyone's selling assets at the same moment, the asset prices fall. So each bank trying to get healthier, every time they sell one of their assets, they get less and less money for it. So they get a little less healthy, so they have to sell more assets. And you can see it just goes down and down and down. It reminds me of you know one of the big problems with fisheries, where each fisherman has an incentive to buy to get as many fish as they possibly can But with everyone getting as many fish as they possibly can, there's a lot more fish on the market. The price of fish goes down, which gives the fishermen an incentive to get even more fish because they're getting less money per fish. And so they fish more and more and more. And you end up in a situation where they fished all the fish out of the ocean and nobody's making any money. And now imagine another world where every bank is terribly run. It's really badly run. And, you know, they they don't know what they're doing. They're not protecting themselves, they're not saving money for a rainy day, but they're each poorly run in a different way. They have a different set of really bad assets. They have a different irresponsible strategy. So when there's a downturn, one guy might start selling assets, another guy might go to a casino with $100 million and try and turn it around and bet on red and see if he can make it into $200 million. Um, You know, another guy might be taking big bets on Florida real estate or whatever. But the point is, each one is irresponsible and unhealthy, but in a different way. And so you don't have this situation where everybody's doing the same thing at the same moment, making the system itself collapse. So what the systemic risk regulator would do is pay attention to those growth spurts well, there's a few different ways you could do it. One way is you pay attention. If, if the economy is growing, then you basically have to say to the banks, all right, the economy is growing, but what we know is at some point in the future, six months, two years from now, you all are going to do this other thing where you're gonna, the economy is going to shrink and you're going to sell your assets. So we need you to buy a few extra assets now. We need you to protect yourself a little bit more now. Then when the economy starts shrinking and people start selling assets, the systemic risk regulator might come in and say, you know what, we're not going to push the rules so hard. You don't have to save as much money as you did two years ago during the boom time. You can save less money. You can actually allow yourself to be a little less healthy right now a little less protected because we're protecting the system by allowing each of you to be just a little bit more irresponsible it's a weird idea it's a very weird idea to think we're going to create a regulator who's one of whose central jobs is to um to 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 make banks less responsible at certain times but but that is one of the concepts that that um that people believe will make the system as a whole more healthy. You know, the whole idea of a systemic risk regulator—like when you say it, you're like,
0: "Yes, we obviously need that." And then you start to think, well, "What would? How would you actually do it?" They kind
4: of need to understand the interconnectedness of all things. You know, and- so uh, there's a whole host of issues that come into this because it means it means a few things, and and, and one thing it means is, I mean, basically regulation has worked. Very much in step with banks and with insurance companies. They've worked out a, I almost want to say, codependent relationship um, over the last 70 years or so. And regulation is very intense, but it's very cooperative. And for banks, I mean, there, there's this myth out there that, you know, sometime during the Uh, President Reagan administration, you know, banks just were completely unregulated, which is absolutely not true. Banks are heavily, heavily regulated, at least commercial banks, regular banks, not so much investment banks or hedge funds. And insurance companies certainly are heavily regulated. But in a way that it's a very comfortable, cozy relationship. And the systemic risk regulator would make it a little less fun to be a banker. It would, you know, uh, it it would make them have to make a little less money during the growth periods. Um, But... And they would have enormous power and sort of flexibility, I think. Right, and that's what really freaks the banks out. And more than anything, it freaks the people who aren't banks, who start saying, wait a second, where where does this end? You're saying that you're not, you know, right now it's very clear if you are a bank, you have this regulation, but if you're, and if, but if you're a, you know, an auto company with a financing arm, you don't have that regulation or, you know, and who knows where the systemic risk goes to, who who else might sell assets during a downturn that would add to the problem that could be any company that could be you know someone who manufactures you know widgets who who just happens to have a lot of investments and that really really scares people where will this go and just how much power will the government have over lots and lots of, of different kinds of companies that it never had power like this over and this
0: this came up in the Capitol Hill hearing yesterday where Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner was there uh, explaining sort of what they were hoping for for these new rules of the road. And he got in this uh, it, it, like a little, a, a tiff, I don't know, altercation. Yeah, with, it's uh, awesome. With, uh, Don Manzolo, who's a Republican from Illinois representative. And uh, let's just play it for you here.
2: What I'm trying to ask you is how many new companies would be involved in this? How intimate would be the relationship? It's so intimate that you're going to determine what the executive compensation is. So I would think that before you came out with this plan, you would have some idea of the number of companies that would be subject to this new regulation.
0: We laid out a broad set of proposals in the legislation and a broad set of principal standards for determining what a systemic risk authority would no, cover in that context. And those are things that we'll have to work out in consultation with the Congress. No, no,
2: I, I, I understand a, that. But, I mean, you realize how radical your proposal is. It's not a radical proposal. Oh, it's, it's absolutely. You're no. talking about seizing private businesses, no, and thing, you don't consider that to be radical? No, this
0: is a prudent, carefully designed proposal to protect, protect our financial system from the If Congress it's principle.
2: prudent and carefully designed, Mr. Secretary, then you would have of the answers to some of my questions, such as what size business would be subject to this. I'm not giving you a hard time because I appreciate the fact that you came out with, with, with a guideline, with a framework, and it's a discussion framework, and, I, and, and, and those are good points on that. I'm just, I'm just raising the, the concern uh, that, that so many people in America have because of more intrusion.
4: I got to say, David, I am really sympathetic to both sides of this argument. I have to say i'm I'm very sympathetic to the idea that that it makes sense that we do have to somehow monitor this system overall, and that means more power you know to some regulator than than has ever been given before at the same time it is we are talking about a dramatic extension of the government's power in an un right now at this moment in an unclear way. To to have huge influence over the day to day operations of lots and lots of businesses, and I mean I you know I feel like the devils in the details. We're just going to hear that so much. I maybe this is we should officially say this is the last time we're allowed to say that on Planet Money. We have to come up with some other cliche or some other phrase. But boy oh boy, the devils in the details. I mean you could you could write these rules in a way that you know puts a stranglehold on innovation that really damages American businesses' ability to grow. It's really true. This is very dangerous. Or you could write it in a way that you know really makes it much more likely that we're going to have a healthy, vibrant system for, for decades to come.
0: Hey, Adam, do you have any idea who the systemic risk regulator might be? I mean, people talk about the Fed or the FDIC, and I've heard strong arguments against both of those.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think the Fed, as I you know, read the tea leaves is is winning the argument. They're the one that is most likely to to walk away with with the bulk of these new powers. There's a lot, by the way. There are a lot of really fascinating, creative ideas. There's this whole world I didn't even know about this until a few weeks ago. There's this whole world of academic economists and academic lawyers and who've been dreaming up rewriting the rules of regulation and how would systemic risk regulation work. And I've talked to them and said, you know, you know that no one will ever use your ideas. They're like, I know, I know. But but it's just sort of this, you know, it's like theoretical regulation, you know, like theoretical physics or something. They're just imagining what would be perfect. And there's lots of ideas, some of which don't involve an actual regulator. They involve like these products where banks would have to purchase sort of basically a self-destruct bond or something like they would have to (laughs) invest in something that allows them to kind of wrap up their business rather rapidly if they need to in a short period of time and um it's it's very fascinating um all all the ideas and and i hope that we at planet money can can take some of the most interesting ideas and sort of give them a hearing um since frankly i don't know if they're going to get a hearing in congress over the coming weeks because if nothing else I find it intellectually fascinating this problem is a big problem, and it's an interesting problem and I've talked to a lot of really smart guys and gals who who are thinking about it so um i i i I just want to be clear we have not been exhaustive in this particular conversation thanks Adam thanks man and
0: now Alex, it is time I think right, for the envelope game.
4: yes, it
3: is so. David, how you react to the recent Treasury Department plan to save the banking system depends a lot on what you think is troubling the banks in the first place. And I had this conversation with a guy named Greg Berman, who's been on the program before. He works at Risk Metrics Group. He laid all this out. Uh, and it all has to do with what he said, the difference between fair value and market value. And he took me on a series of sort of examples, and um, and I will now take you on the uh, with us as well. So he starts with a very basic example, a simple bond. And let's let's just say um, a bond is I give you some amount of money today in exchange for a promise from you to pay me back more money later. So I give you ten dollars today, and you promise to pay me fifteen dollars in a year. That's a simple bond.
1: Let's say I I tell you I have an envelope, and in the envelope. I have um a government check. So it's guaranteed. It's, there's no no credit risk on this. Uh and the check is worth um uh five thousand dollars. Uh and I will uh I will give it to you in uh six months from now. All right? And you know I'm good for this. So I will give you this check for five thousand dollars in six months from now. Um how much would you be willing to give me? Um maybe not by today by tomorrow how much would you be willing to give me for a check that you're going to give me in 5 in 6 months in 6 months that's worth $5000 i don't know maybe uh
3: 4500
1: okay that's right that's yeah, so there's some convenience you'd rather have the money now than have the money later so you'll give me 4500 now and you'll get uh 5000 later that's a really good rate by the way so that's uh, that's a that's a that's a good rate you're hard, you're hard. good negotiator
3: Okay, so David, a, a couple of things there. First, I'm actually not a good negotiator. <laughs> Greg was being Greg, I'm living in a fantasy world. There's no way I could get that kind of rate on a $5,000 bond. I'd probably have to give him much more, like 4900 something like that. It would
0: like be that. a very but, risky bond. Yeah. Yes,
3: exactly. Um, but uh, there's two main things. One, the fair value of this thing that we're talking about, this $5,000 bond, is very clear. It's five grand. No one disputes the return I'll get. I've looked into the envelope. I've seen that it's a certified check from the U.S. Treasury post dated six run- months from now. And I know that if I enter into this agreement with 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 Greg, I will have my, gri- my five grand at the end. So the fair value is not in dispute. Thing number two, assuming I'm the only one in this market, the market value is also pretty clear. I might not have 4.5 grand in my checking account right now, but if I needed to, I could raise 4.5 grand by tomorrow. I'd ask my friends or transfer money from savings or whatever. You know, I'd, I'd, I could scrape together 4.5 thousand dollars if I needed to. And I would just tell people, listen, I got this guy. He's going to give me $5,000 in six months. It's a great return. I'm going to make double-digit returns. You can get on this action, whatever. So I could raise the money if I wanted to. I am liquid. That's what, they, that's what that means, basically. I can get the money. At least liquid enough to buy a $5,000 bond. But...
1: Let's assume that it's a check for 50 million dollars. Okay, now this is real. 50 million dollars. I want half. I want 25 million up front. Will you can you get me tomorrow 25 million dollars so that I will hold this check for 50 million dollars for you for the next 6 months.
3: Now let me just get this straight. I give you 25 million tomorrow and in 6 months you give me 50 million. Correct. Uh well, for the sake of argument, let's just say, yeah, <laughs> I can raise twenty-five million by tomorrow. Sure.
1: No, no, for, no. This is this oh. is not hypothetical. This is real. I need twenty-five million tomorrow. Of your, and it's it's, it's your money. So this is this can you can we do this deal? Could, can you sign a piece of paper right now that says guarantee you are coming back here tomorrow twenty-five million dollars? Oh, for real? Yeah. N- no. All right, and why is that? Because I don't have twenty-five million. All right. So, so um, the key is that we know the the fair value of this and we know the definite value of this is going to be 50 million dollars but you don't have 25 million dollars to come up with in the next two days all right so how much do you think you can come up with now maybe you can say wow you know i can call up friends and family i can scrape together like ten thousand dollars by the end of the weekend and if you're willing to take ten thousand dollars for this then then that's fine right but i can't come up with 25 million dollars so hypothetically you were fine with the $25 million. But in reality, you couldn't come up with that money. Okay, that is what we call a liquidity issue. You are not arguing with the value of this, right? We didn't debate that it's, you know, whether it's worth uh, $40 million or $30 million. You just made a statement, I can't come up with this money. Now, if I go to a whole bunch of people and no one can come up with this money, and the most that anybody can come up with is $10 million dollars, that's because that's all anybody has—liquid cash. Then, the most that I can sell this for is ten million dollars. So therein lies the issue that we have today. So, in other words, what Greg is saying here is, and this is
3: one argument anyway: that the so-called toxic assets on the bank balance sheets. Those are more or less these $50 million checks in envelopes. And normally people would be willing to pay a certain amount for them, 30 $40, 45000000 million, depending on how long they'd have to wait to cash the checks and whatever. But because of all the carnage in the markets and the tanking economy, everyone, including huge multinational banks, is sort of broke right now. No one has any cash to spare, and so no one can actually pay what these things are really worth. The market value, in other words is much, much lower
1: than the fair value. Now, this is, believe it or not, this is the rosy situation, which is that the market value is so low for things because no one is willing to buy anything that the real fair value is much higher. That is something that can be solved. It's difficult to solve. It needs a tremendous amount of money. Uh, But if we find that that the market value is much, much lower than the fair value, then you can claim that this is a liquidity problem. And that the reason why the market is depressed is because there's not enough liquidity. And what happens when you have a liquidity crisis is um, anybody with big, deep pockets and a long investment time horizon can do extremely well. So who has big, deep pockets and a long time horizon? Uh, Well, the government has very, very deep pockets, and they have a long time horizon. So the government can presumably come in. Um, the government can borrow money very, very, very cheaply right now. The U.S. government, U.S. rates are, 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 are tiny. They can borrow money, um, and then they can purchase these assets. They can um, purchase these assets at a value, at a price that is higher than the market value today. However, if we um, split the difference between the market value and the fair value, that means that as a taxpayer, we have um, a lot more to gain because we can eventually get to the fair value of this. Um, So that's the rosy situation, as difficult as it is. The much, much less rosy situation is if you do the calculation, you find that the fair value, you know, your best guess, is about what the market value is, in which case this means that the market has correctly priced um, uh, what these assets are and that we don't have a liquidity risk problem. We don't have a a liquidity issue. Um, what we have is we have a bunch of people defaulting on their loans and you're never getting your money back. The only reason why you would pay a premium and buy these at a value that is higher than the market value um, is if you just want to give the money to somebody so that's we call that charity <laughs> right that's a bailout or charity. so there there's there's no investment here no matter how you look at it these no one is getting paid on these assets in that case just trillions of dollars have been lost and there's not much that you can do about that um, unless you just say it's going to be a strict bailout, a bailout in the true sense of, yes, I know that um, this thing that you had, um, the envelope with the money in it, the $50 million check, um, it's going to bounce. <laughs> it's there's, there's no $50 million, right? At best, I've checked the account. There's only $10 million in the account, but I'm going to give you $20 million, so I'm going to eat that loss. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. so two,
0: two very different ideas there
3: two two different views and and right now nobody really knows which view is is correct is the market correctly pricing these things or is there a liquidity ish crisis and 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 you've you may have heard sort of like if you um, aside from listening to planet Money you watch CNBC obsessively and listen to all and read all the uh, all the financial forums on, on online you might have heard the phrase a uh, liquidity crisis versus a solvency crisis and that's what that means some people are saying like no it's just People don't have enough money to properly price these assets, and other people are saying, "No, the assets are broke, the banks are broke, and they're properly priced the way they are." You know, it's possible um,
0: that it's it's possible that it's somewhere in between too, right? That there's a bit of a liquidity crisis, which is part of it, and also that uh, you know the government is is going to help everybody buy these things, and by helping everyone buy these things, they they push the price up, which makes it a bit of a gift to the banks, a bit of charity.
3: Yeah, and 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 I think there is no question that that that. Well, I don't know if there's there's probably a question, but that some of these things have been dragged down in value by association. Sort of any housing related bond out there is probably getting dragged down even if everybody in that in the pools that are backing that bond, if if they're solid borrowers and they're all paying, it still might be declining in price just because of sort of guilt by association. I've heard people say that. But the government plan that just came out is basically uh addressing Greg's rosier scenario. It's basically sort of saying we're we're assuming there's a liquidity issue and that the people who would normally buy these things, they don't have enough money, they can't raise the money. And so what the government plan basically does is it either lends the money to these people itself, the government lends the money itself, or it makes it easier for them to lend it to to borrow the money from other people. Basically it guarantees loans that they get from other people. Cross your fingers. Yes, indeed. <laughs> it doesn't really address the second scenario of what if what if the market is right. So, David, we've also been talking about um, who's to blame, right?
0: Yeah, who's to blame? Who are the bad guys in the crisis? And actually, I went to interview someone whose job it is to find bad guys. Uh, he is a former prosecutor from New York. His name is Neil Borofsky, and he is the Special Inspector General for the TARP program. So TARP is, of course, the big $700 billion bailout plan. Lots of money, certainly the potential for some fraud in there. So he has a big job. Um, He's a TARP cop? He's a TARP cop. Yeah, TARP cop. (laughs) Okay. uh, So SIG TARP, they were given office space in the very grand treasury building here in Washington, D.C. I walked over there and, Alex, I I was surprised to find that actually they got stuck in the basement.
5: Actually, our basement office, which is down the hall, is being um, uh, fixed. There is uh, some sort of musty smell in it, and they are currently, they brought in the hazmat team, and they are currently uh, cleaning it up for us to move back in. Um, they do they do have
0: a lease for this building on L Street where the rest of the TARP folks
3: are going to be, and they're hoping to move there in a couple weeks. But,
0: Alex, how big do you think their staff is? Uh, Just
3: make so, a wait, they're, they're in charge of sort of... Policing the entire seven hundred billion dollars, I would imagine. I don't know. I mean, that seems like a big job. You probably have to have like a uh, couple hundred thousand people, maybe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you for setting this up. No, he, he, he thinks the final staff will be somewhere over a hundred people. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. And you know how many they've hired so far?
3: Uh, well, let's see. I don't know. Like thirty-five. Like, like thirty. 30? Yeah. Wow.
5: We've got a lot of work to do. We've had some, some significant challenges hiring. Um, we are currently have a bill pending uh, in the House, which will hopefully give us some greater hiring flexibility.
0: What's what's actually the challenge in hiring? Is it that if I say, I'd love to work for you, this is a great project, but it's only going to be, I don't know, two years, and then i got to find another job for myself, is that part of the problem?
5: That is part of the problem. Um, basically we need very highly technical and very experienced auditors and investigators, and. We have a lot of competition right now with the stimulus uh, and other sources, and we're under some pretty strict hiring um, requirements through just government hiring in general. And we do have that recruiting issue that we are a temporary agency, although we'll probably be around for quite a number of years. For career government employees, there is a risk involved. And that's why this bill, which is pending, will help us. It help. It'll give us some flexibility in hiring retirees, people who've retired from government service but want to come back uh, and earn a salary while keeping their pension. And and these are the types of folks who will be really helpful for us. They're complex financial investigators who know how to read a balance sheet, know how to look at billion-dollar problems. Uh, And we're hopeful that once this bill gets passed, we'll be able to get those folks on, on staff.
0: Is there a room somewhere around here that has a huge stack of resumes three feet
5: high in it? I think for our investigator position, we got about 600 resumes, um, and we're going through those. But it's, it's challenging. And frankly, we don't have the ability to to pay what the market would pay for those individuals. So we also have to find the people who want to serve their country, who want to work uh, for a greater good, which is to protect all these taxpayer dollars.
0: You said it, you need people who are very highly technically trained. But on the other hand, when I look at it, it seems not maybe so complicated. I mean, most of the TARP money went to a handful of large banks, and they're basically fairly straightforward loans in some ways. So it wouldn't seem like that would be that hard to check. What is so what what's so complicated about this?
5: One potential crime, what we're looking into, is people who've cooked their books, who fix their their balance sheets, their financial statements, in order to get this money in the first place. So that's pretty complicated. But that doesn't even begin with the other ten programs that have now been announced um, today. The, um, the PPIF program, the TAUF program, these are very, very complex securities transactions and require some, some pretty smart and pretty experienced people just to even begin to how to investigate them and audit them.
0: The, um, the example you mentioned of, of a possible fraud so, in other words, a bank might have went and applied for a bailout money from the TARP funds, you know, give us, buy preferred shares, we need more capital. Um, and to do that, they made their case by showing their balance sheets. And if you want to go and judge whether they were fraudulent in that, you'd have to get really deep into their finances, I guess.
5: And and that's what we're doing. Um, We have a number of different ways of of finding that out. Uh, One of the the most public ways is through our hotline. Uh, We maintain a hotline on our website, www.sigtarp.gov, and on our telephone hotline, one eight seven seven sig two thousand nine. Were you
0: told to try and work those into the conversation at some point?
5: I, I worked into every conversation. Uh, every time I testify in front of Congress, I always find at least one opportunity. And, and there's a reason because we get insiders. Uh, we've already had. We've already opened up one criminal investigation based on an insider at a bank who identified that the bank was. This is just an allegation. Was cooking their books. That they were playing with their ratios to get TARP money. And that is that is just a classic example of why we exist we 're going to find if there is if that did happen uh, and it is a crime we're going to investigate it
0: so alex they're going after bad guys, but also they've ended up doing a lot of frankly what we've been trying to do here, which is just explaining what the heck happened in the bailout and what is happening and laying it out all those big deals that were made behind closed doors, all the bailouts that were part of tarp you know who talked to who. How exactly were the terms arrived at? All that stuff.
5: We have a case study that's ongoing into the way Bank of America received, in four different transactions, in three different TARP programs, uh, $45 billion in cash and a promise to guarantee $100 billion uh, of toxic assets. And we're taking that from, from day one, uh, that meeting that's been often described, where the nine bank, nine biggest financial institutions, were told that they were going to be participating in this program and taking it all the way through through the the now very controversial Bank of America Merrill Lynch merger and we're going to take a look at all the decision making process what went into it and really what happened I mean in other
0: words to make sure that there was nobody on treasury who was doing favors for friends of theirs in one of the banks or Bank of America in that case
5: basically looking at it and bringing transparency to the process Uh, When we do an audit as a case study, one is you're just trying to put together all the pieces of what happened. And there's been a lot that's been said publicly from different participants about what happened. this is we hope to have as sort of the definitive um, guide as to what exactly happened. Can you force people to talk to you? We cannot. Uh, We can request people to talk to us. We don't have the uh, ability to compel testimony. Uh, but we do partner up with, with those who can. So, for example, if we're working a case with the SEC, they have a, a, the ability to compel testimony. And obviously, whenever we work with the U.S. Attorney's Office or we're working currently with the New York State Attorney General, they have the ability to compel testimony. But we don't. We can just ask.
0: So, if you're trying to reconstruct what happened with Bank of America, you're just going to have to ask everybody to tell you what happened?
5: That's right. And so far, nobody
0: said no. Is that because your return address is the Treasury Building and you have fancy stationery and uh, it says
5: SIGTARP on the top? I don't think anyone wants to be perceived as not being cooperative with us. Uh, I don't think that um, that would be helpful for any institution. And frankly, it's our authority reaches out to these, these financial institutions to audit and investigate, um, and I think it would send a, a bad message if they didn't want to talk to us.
0: Okay, that's great. Do you want to give the website and the phone number one more time here? Sure.
5: If you are aware of any fraud, waste, or abuse in any TARP-related program, including the recent mortgage modification program, uh, come to our website, www.sigtarp, sigtarp or call us at 877-SIG, S-I-G-2009. Uh, and that's
0: your phone, your cell phone number, it rings and you answer it.
5: It's funny you say that, during the first couple of weeks, my my office line was back to the hotline, uh, and I did get a lot of very interesting calls, actually, some some great maybe not any great great tips with some great insights from folks uh some really insightful thing from regular people who are just angry.
3: So David have they have they hired the person who's going to answer the phone now? It's yeah, not, apparently
5: yeah. there's a very if you call the number you get a
0: very competent uh lawyer at the other end. Yeah. So so if you have any tips Alex give him a call.
3: Or you know David they could just um Call us. But we're always looking for tips, too. I mean, they could just send it to D. Kestenbaum. And- no, no, no.
0: Give them the Planet Money email. PlanetMoney <laughs> Planet money. at
3: NPR.org. If you hear about fraud, let us know. Let us know. and We'll pass it right on to Mr. Borowski.
0: I think that does it for us today. Check out the blog, NPR.org slash money. Send us your uh, indicators, photographs. We love that stuff. I'm David Kestenbaum.
3: And I'm Alex
5: Bloomberg. Thank you for listening.